By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we are going to talk about the nuances and differences of golf balls. I think a lot of golfers over the years are confused by all of the marketing materials we see from manufacturers and their 17 different golf balls and what they do differently. So we have a couple of repeat guests who are back with us. We have Marty Jertson and Chris Brody from Ping, which is also operates the website Ballnamic. So guys, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be on. I know last time we were talking about weather, wind, temperature, elevation, all that stuff. And, and the golf ball has a really big impact on that. And John, I think you introduced it nicely, that break through the confusion about golf balls. <laughs> That's kind of our entire motivation of Ballnamic. So. Yeah. So again, a reminder for people, they can go back to our first episode with these guys. We did talk about wind, altitude, temperature, how those affect ball flight. It was super informative. Definitely go back to that. And today we are going to talk about the differences in golf balls. We have a ton of questions from Twitter. I've got questions. Adam's got questions. Hopefully we'll get to all of them. But yeah, guys, where do we start with golf balls? Because I think people are so confused. Like, do I get the Pro V1 or what's the difference between a noodle and a Pro V1 or the Pro V1 versus the TP5? So you guys have done a ton of research. Give us a little background into what Ballnamic is, a reminder for people and, and what you figured out. Yeah, I guess I'll lead off on that one. And in, in it, how did Ballnamic start? I mean, it started, quite frankly, with 
A, we've done a lot of ball testing at Ping over the years because while we don't make a ball, while we don't design balls, we need to know what is going on with golf balls because you can't design and optimize your clubs without knowing the ball. And Karsten, our founder, he said that the golf ball was like the tuning fork to the club, right? And that's something that's like ingrained in our DNA here at Ping that we always need to know what's going on. Balls have changed a lot. Over the years, obviously, if we look at it in the decades timescale, they've changed a lot. But even if you look at it at the year over year timescale, they've certainly changed a lot. And that's what we have expertise in testing balls. And so we were sitting a lot on a lot of this ball data and we consulted with our tour department for a long time. So they would come to us with questions. A tour player would be switching balls and they'd be noticing things that were interesting to them. You know, one of the most notable examples is they would be on a quad or an optical device and seeing spin rates, thinking that the ball should be doing something differently than they were observing on the course. So they would be seeing, for example, high spin on their quad. They'd go play a golf ball, a certain ball model, and they'd be noticing it flying very low on the course. And they were confused by that. And so they kept asking us questions. And so that kind of opened the door to create Ballnamic, which is we're noticing some very interesting things happening aerodynamically. And we wanted to pass along that same process flow that a tour player would fit their golf ball in synergistically to their club fitting. And that's what Ballnamic allows you to do. It allows you to marry your club fitting and your ball fitting synergistically together. So that's one of the things we wanted to do and break through the confusion about balls, as well as allow the everyday golfer to keep up with how often golf balls change. And that's something we can get into on the pod today is what some of the differences we've seen year over year on a golf ball, right? So the ball you played last generation could have some very significant changes, which is what we've seen year over year in different areas of performance. And then lastly, John and Adam, it's that golf balls, you don't need to go focus on picking a ball that does one thing. For example, uh, greenside spin. I want to maximize that, start looking at golf ball there. All the other things, driving, iron performance, whatever, don't really matter. All that matters, greenside spin. We want to kind of also break through that. You want to marry the golf ball across all categories of performance at the same time. And that is something that Ballnamic allows you to do. So the question I've always had, and I'm sure plenty of other golfers, is like, what are the big material differences? And I know this is probably hard to answer for every handicap level, but when someone is, you know, by default playing a Pro V1 and maybe Ballnamic is saying, well, actually the Bridgestone might be better for you or the TP5. What are material differences that golfers can actually see on the golf course between playing the wrong ball and getting the right ball? Yeah, I think, again, part of the reason why we designed the software is because there are massive differences even between premium golf balls, between Bridgestone, between Tylus, between TaylorMade. And so that shows up across the full range of performance. So it will it will be a 10-yard difference in your driver distance. It will be a 1,000 RPM difference in your spin rate. It will be a knuckleball and a chip shot versus a tight, nipping, spinny chip. And so each factor changes with the golf ball. And that's why we think like the golf ball can be a really good fitting lever. For someone who is high spin, they can go to an AVX or a... Bridgestone Tour BX or some low spinning golf ball. And we've seen the other side of the spectrum where if you're a low spin golfer, you'll be 
very well fit with a higher spinning golf ball. All these factors matter a lot. And the biggest thing is you need to make a ball that complements your entire game. So it gets you the driver performance that you want, the wind performance you want, the seven iron stopping power you want, the greenside spin, the putter feel. And it's hard to know all those things, hard to test 50 different balls. So the Ballnamic software allows you to do that and get you a really good recommendation and help you differentiate between all those different balls. And one of the mistakes I now that I, you guys have corrected me and probably a lot of other people who have launch monitors, I think this was on our first episode, is that you know, let's say you have a SkyTrack or a GC Quad or whatever, you're testing indoors on a turf mat. And, and I've done this before. I've, I've tested the new Bridgestone ball versus my Snell. And this one, I'm like, oh, well, that one's spinning 6,500 with my wedge. And that one's spinning 6,100, you know, on a 50-yard pitch shot or with the driver, one spinning a little bit more. Tell us again why that is a, you're not getting the full picture and it can be misleading if you're doing that. Yeah, I think this was definitely very interesting for me because I've worked a lot on our ball flight model. And so I'm pretty used to looking at a ball speed, a launch, a spin, and wanting to know how far that ball is going to carry and how high it's going to fly. And we started doing these ball tests and we're keeping track of ball speed, launch, spin, carry, max height, and things just weren't adding up. So we had two balls that were identical launch conditions, roughly. One actually had 300 RPM more spin. And so I'm expecting that ball is going to fly a tiny bit higher, maybe go a tiny bit shorter. And what was actually happening is the ball was flying 10 to 15 feet lower and flying a tiny bit further. And I was like, but I'm, I've seen the launch data. It's, it's 200 RPM higher spin. It's launching like 0.1 degrees lower. That ball should be flying higher. So this is like, okay, we got to test this again. Maybe something went wrong. Maybe there was wind conditions. But in our pingman testing, we make sure to get very low wind conditions, like under two miles an hour. So anyway, we redid the test. We actually turned on TrackMan R&D mode where we can see exactly where TrackMan measures the flight of the ball across the full range of flight. And it showed up again. The highest that TrackMan ever measured the higher spinning ball was lower than the lowest that TrackMan ever measured the lower spinning ball. So basically every single shot with the higher spinning ball is flying lower than the lower spinning ball. And is that because of like dimple design, stuff like that? It just performs differently throughout various... Because uh, if you're using a camera-based launch monitor, obviously it's only taking pictures of the initial ball flight off of the ball. So you're saying that's not matching up with what's going on, you know, 150 yards, 200 yards in the air. Yeah, exactly. That's, John, what the sweet spot is here in terms of performance is that, that those initial conditions only give you about half of the puzzle, right? Okay. You need those initial conditions, and those can be big drivers and can correlate to height, but not always. That's the root of what Ballnamic allows golfers to do is to take those initial conditions. So you can actually do, and we have a lot of fitters that license Ballnamic. And the reason why they do it is that they can get much better at their indoor fittings. They can turn their indoor fittings into simulating what's actually going to happen in an outdoor fit or outdoor on course real performance, even to where you obviously in Balnami, you guys have used it. We can throw wind at, at different golf balls and see what's happening there. So that's kind of at the core of what makes Balnamic unique. And the, what we noticed there is that both yeah, aerodynamics and maybe some inertial characteristics of the ball 
can have a very big impact. And, and that's what our tour players came to us with and first noticed. And we're like, there's something we need to tease out of this from an aerodynamic standpoint. Yeah, I think I can follow up and like quantify what those aerodynamics equate to. So when we see a ball flying 10 feet lower than we expect, we can back out that this ball must be experiencing lower lift and lower drag during its flight, probably through dimple design. But we know that this is what the aerodynamic effect has to be for this golf ball to fly the way that we observed. And so we can quantify every single ball's aerodynamic properties and give a range of what's the highest lift ball and what's the lowest lift ball. And so in our database at the moment, the lowest lift ball was the 2020 Titleist AVX and the highest lift was the 2020 TaylorMade Tour Response. And the difference in those two flights is effectively an 800 RPM spin difference. If you took a normal ball, launched at 2600, the AVX, you could launch at 2600 and it would fly like a 2200 RPMs of spin. And the Tour Response would fly like a 3000 RPMs of spin. Even though the launch conditions that you see on a Foresight, on a, on a TrackMan are the same, the downline flight is going to be 800 RPM spin different. So, which is so there's, yeah, that's significant impact. So that's the, the biggest difference you see in, in golf balls there, about 800 RPMs. Obviously, it depends on things like club speed and, well, maybe. <laughs> that's just the impact of the change in aerodynamics, Adam, if that oh, makes right, sense, okay. right? So that just shows how big of a difference the downrange flight, the aerodynamic component. And then there's also differences ball to ball in the initial conditions as well, right? And so... We started looking at this data, and I think our initial reaction was we were quite frustrated. If we're going to design clubs, and if we're going to fit clubs, how do we do it if the balls are all this different, right? But then we said, okay, here's an opportunity. This is what tour players are doing, and now with Balnamic, this is what every golfer can do, is there's an opportunity to leverage these differences, right? Let's, hey, these differences are good. Now, if you have a player, you can't get them into low enough spin on a driver or the ball's falling out of the air. They can't generate enough lift. They need to maximize carry. They're playing low spinning irons that are falling out of the air. You can use golf ball to marry into their club fitting. So we kind of flipped this frustration into hopefully a positive and married it to how the tour players are, are doing their fits. Can you explain the difference? Because this is a, a big purchasing decision for a lot of people. I don't think you do you have data on like budget golf balls, like the two piece, the Serlin, if I'm pronouncing that properly, like the, the classic ones, the noodle. And, and I think I'm sure a lot of people want to know, like, what am I getting? What am I potentially losing by playing the noodle versus the yeah. premium Titleist, TaylorMade, Bridgestone? What do you see as the main differences between those two yeah. types of models? Great question. Yeah, we tend to... I guess avoid testing the Serlin cover balls because they tend to perform pretty similarly. They'll have tend to be low compression, so low ball speed on a driver, tend to be very low spin on irons. And then the Serlin, when you put any sort of moisture on the ball, spin rate plummets. So we've done a lot of wet wedge testing and a good premium ball will maybe spin 9,000 in dry testing, 8,000 in wet testing. A Serlin cover will spin 4,000. It will have every single shot you hit with any bit of moisture will turn to a flyer. It's almost not even worth adding to our system because we wouldn't recommend it for someone who's serious about their distance and their control around the green. They just aren't great balls. They cost less, but they have a lot of deficiencies as a result. Maybe the one urethane premium ball that we do test that's available to the masses is the K-Sig, the Kirkland Signature 3-piece. 
Is it as good as they say? Unfortunately, it is not. It is. It is. It is one of the balls that. <laughs> so that don't pay a hundred dollars on eBay uh, for it. It is possible to get that ball recommended a ball dynamic. You definitely need to want high spin. Maybe not care about how far the ball goes on your driver. <laughs> um, maybe not care for how far the ball goes on a seven iron because you will be losing a lot of distance and will be spinning quite a bit. Well, will any of the budget golf balls, is there a significant difference in driver distance? Would you see a big drop off in distance with, with the driver, with a two-piece ball? Yeah, so yeah, we haven't done a ton of testing on them, but the K-SIG is a good 20-yard drop in distance on a 110-mile-an-hour swing speed, maybe 25-yard drop. And so I think you're going to see a similar like six-mile-an-hour ball speed loss if it's a low-compression ball, which is going to hurt all right, so so it sounds like you are getting what you're paying for when you're trying to save that much money. Yeah, there's certainly a threshold there, John. I think that's where in Balnamic we've kind of focused on on the urethane, you know, three piece or more over a certain price point. And within that, we do have a price filter because we recognize that's important to folks. And so you can certainly go through Balnamic at the end, and then we have a one, two, three dollar signs filter down to one. And that is a fun, nice use case for Balnamic is, hey, what's the most performance I can get relative to the dollar spent? And then you can actually go in there and play with that and see what performance you might be losing and what is the magnitude of that and do your own little sensitivity analysis. Well, that's what I did. I still play a Snell ball, which is one of the quote unquote budget premium direct to consumer balls. It's yeah, it's yeah, now it's like $32 a dozen if you buy a bunch at a time. I still play the MTBX. And when I went through the ball dynamic fitting, that was luckily my top two recommendation. I think it was the Bridgestone and that. And they were within like, it was a really close margin. So I wasn't feeling like I was losing too much, but luckily it was, I've been playing the ball for years and I, I know how it reacts in the wind. And I'm very happy with it. And luckily Balnamic felt that that was a good ball for me as well. Yeah, that is significantly, it's a $15 difference between the two brands per dozen. It's it's a lot of money because it's the only thing we're, luckily I keep my driver in play, so I'm not replacing balls a lot anymore. <laughs> but and that leads me into my next question. I'm just going to keep firing at you guys and Adam can too, because we have a million questions. When you notice that little scuff on your ball, can you keep playing it? Like, what is a good, if you are someone who does not lose a lot of golf balls, can you play them for three rounds? Can you play them for five rounds? Do you have any data on that? A little bit of a tricky question because, like, how big of a scuff? You know, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. not really a binary I'm thing. I'm talking like the minor ones, like, just from like playing a normal round of golf, like, you're going to yeah. see a little bit of some type of. Scott, I'm not talking about a huge gash along the middle of it. Yeah, exactly. I think as long as you can't like feel it with your finger, you know, like okay. it's not, like you didn't hit a rock out of a bunker, Adam. We're in we're in the desert. We're used to that, man. You're out in the desert. You hit one in the desert and you hit something and you get that ding in there. I think as long as you don't do that, there you won't see any type of significant change in macro performance. I think that's a good point, John, that like, you know, in terms of quality control of balls or scuff marks. The differences between one ball and another is going to live well within the range of what you'd see with like a little bit of a scuff mark or even like a quality control issue. We haven't seen major differences performance to performance within like a group of balls that we've tested that would be big enough, I think, for anyone to be necessarily concerned about relative to when selecting your ball. But yeah, I think the ultimate extreme would be like we've done some testing on mud balls, right? And so you would have like a big old chunk of something on there sticking out that both impacts the center of gravity and some of the impact dynamics, but then also would maybe stay on the ball when it flew and affected the aerodynamics 
And if the scuff is big enough, and I think the rule of thumb would be if you could feel it with your thumb and your finger test, you know, take that thing out of play. Got it. With mud balls, does it go with the old adage that if the mud is on the right side of the ball, the ball's going to tend to go more to the left? Is that what you tend to see? Yeah, we have good, a... Because that's what I experienced on the golf course. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we have a really good article on our, our Ping Proving Grounds blog that goes over that. And exactly what you said, It's if it's on the right, it goes left. I recently experienced this in a bunker, and it, it cost me a little bit because I didn't foresee the 15-yard little left flight that, that ended up going on. Mud does quite a bit if you, if you place it... If you place a bunch of it in the right spot, you're gonna see, you're gonna see a difference in offline and in carry distance. Yeah, and the big thing with mud too is it just increases your uncertainty. You're gonna just play more conservatively. And then if you have mud, like let's say it's not on the left or the right, it's on the front of the ball or what have you. I mean, the ball's gonna lose lift and it's gonna go way shorter. I think that's one of the big things about mud balls is your pattern's gonna be bigger and in general it's gonna go a lot shorter. And I think that's a good thing to kind of keep in mind on mud balls. Here's another good question that has popped up many times. Some people have asked me this. Will Noth asked this on Twitter. How much does the ball's spin rate characteristics affect accuracy? I.e., if you're playing a more quote unquote spinny golf ball, is that going to increase your dispersion with your driver? Because some people ask me that, like, if I play a Pro V1X, am I going to be less accurate off the tee because it spins more? Yeah, this is this is a really good question. Probably a couple answers to it. We actually did a a test with an open face driver on Pingman and put in a Torbalata and then a couple more premium 2015 Pro V1X, 2019 Pro V1X and observed the launch conditions and offline distance and carry distance. And so that Torbalata spun about a thousand RPM higher than the current premium balls. And that led to about 30 yard shorter carry distance. And the offline was actually lower. So it kind of spun up in the air, just didn't travel as far. Really? Would you notice anything significant between today's models? Like I'm sure, I, I'm sure you guys know there are some premium balls that spin more than others. Is it significant enough to make a decision on that? Yeah, so I, I would definitely say yes. I think there's also more. There's more to the story. So even if the ball flies shorter, you're just gonna, you tend to get less offline. But where it applies usually is on an iron. If you're trying to hit the ball a certain distance that extra spin then translates into more offline distance. Got it. You will curve the ball more with higher spin. We have an article on the ball fitting site about workability and this Bubba Watson like hook shot from the pine straw at the masters. He curved it 40 yards and we estimate that with a higher spin, more workable ball, he's going to curve that shot about 20 feet more than a lower spinning, less workable golf ball. And so our rough approximations, like maybe a 10% reduction in curve from high to low workability. That is one of the questions you guys ask during the fitting process. Do you like to work the ball? I don't anymore. So I I select no. And if someone said, yes, I do like to work the ball, like what is that calculating in the background? Is it mostly that spin rate issue? There's a couple ways to do it, but it's estimating how far offline a crosswind would push the ball, which we think is very correlated to how much you can curve the ball. I think it shows up with the preferences we've seen on tour. Tiger wants a ball that curves a bunch, so he goes with the Tour BXS. Bryson wants a ball that flies straight and far, and he goes with the Tour BX. And those show up in our in our algorithm as two of the extremes of workability. Yeah, I think, John, your, to your question is, can you, I think the question at hand is, can you select a ball that will help you hit it straighter, right? 
and minimize yeah, your Yeah, that, that's always the question. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, what can I do to hit it straighter? <laughs> yeah, the answer is yes. The answer yeah. is yes. Now, we don't ask that question. We, Chris and I debated this. Should we ask that question directly in Balnamic? And maybe we could always modify <laughs> you're setting, it. Right? You're setting yourself up for disaster but, and expectation yeah, management. Exactly. <laughs> if that's important to you, I guess this little hack of Balnamic is you set your driver height preference as low as possible, and you set your iron height stopping power preference is as low as, as low as possible. And then you set your wind workability as straight as your possible. workability as straight as possible. And if you put all those three inputs into Balnamic, you will get the ball that will fly the straightest, right? But you're going to be giving up something though elsewhere. Yes, you would be giving up something. But that would be if that were like of maximal importance to you, right? Yeah. You were going to be hyper focused on that one thing. That's a way to go into Balnamic and do it. And we hypothesize that it could matter up to what, like maybe 10% in terms of like dispersion. So let's say you had a dispersion that was 30 feet or something, you you could reduce that by 10% with the golf ball only, right? So it's a little hack in, in terms of golf ball can indeed influence your dispersion. Another question that something I never cared about this, the softness or hardness of the ball. I know some people you know, whether it's with their putter or the way it feels coming off a wedge or the other, I guess there's a thought that softer balls don't go as far. Can we talk about softness, hardness? Does that relate to compression? I don't know too much about it, but any material differences there of playing a very soft ball versus a harder one in performance? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of nuance to this question. The first part is we do ask a putter feel preference question towards the end of the survey. And so you can say, do you want a ball that feels soft or feels firm off a putter? And that is closely linked to compression. It's not a perfect link, but it's closely linked to compression. So that's important to you. You can say that you want a soft ball and we'll try to find a soft ball for you. But the big thing is it certainly does have, again, a correlation with performance. And so we've seen that this is kind of the my golf spy original saying of soft is slow. That is true. So a lower compression, softer golf ball will have lower ball speed on a driver. What's an example? Is that like the Callaway Chrome Soft? Is that not to rag on Callaway, but is that an example of a, a soft golf ball? It says it in the name. Yeah, so the Chrome Soft and even the Chrome Soft X is a very interesting example of originally a very low compression golf ball. And we had it, I guess the, the early version four or five years ago was about four miles an hour slower than average on a driver. And interestingly, the Chrome Soft X is also about four miles an hour, kind of slower than our standard ball with a driver. But over the years, which is why it's so important to track this, the Chrome Soft X has gone from four miles an hour slower to half a mile per hour faster than our standard golf ball. So even though it has Chrome Soft X in the name, it's actually it's no not longer a soft, soft anymore. Ball. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that was... Shows- Go it ahead, also Mario. shows that compression doesn't always correlate to feel around the greens. In general, it does, but not always. And within Balnamic, we don't use compression to, to generate any of the metadata in the back end, right? When we're testing and characterizing the sound and feel, we're using player testing, microphones, frequency analysis, and things of that nature. So it is a good point that Balnamic, we measure compression, but we don't use it in the algorithms, right? We're just testing the performance only, which is ultimately what the golfer cares about. So I think golfers would be well served to throw the whole compression thing out the window, even though softer compression is going to be slower ball speed, but there's a place for it. And I think Chris has some interesting things to add on that. Yeah, I think a good follow-up question is, if soft is slow, then 
why would manufacturers even make slow golf balls? Why exactly. Make- yeah. Why? <laughs> and so I think it starts to come down to it is speed related. So on that 115 mile an hour driver clubhead speed, you might lose four miles an hour ball speed with that softer ball, which is going to hurt you. It's going to be probably a 10 yard loss in distance. But if you're a slower, maybe 85 mile an hour club speed player, it's only going to hurt you two miles an hour. And that only is a five mile an hour loss in the driver. And then things get interesting when you move to a seven iron. So again, instead of maybe losing four miles an hour on a driver, you only start to lose a one mile an hour on a seven iron. And then the compression starts to change your launch condition. So you tend to get a lot lower spin with a softer compression golf ball. And that can actually more than make up for the ball speed loss and you'll be hitting it further. Uh, okay. And so you could quantify it as like a par four distance metric where that softer golf ball for a slower club head speed player could get close to the hole after a driver and an iron and an iron. Yeah, so it's a different way to think about it. You can almost, like golfers can start thinking about a lower compression ball is going further on your irons, you know? But the causal reason is not the ball speed, it's the lower spin rate. And so that's kind of a little different twist on thinking about compression and its impact on performance. It's quite interesting, actually. I would I would have thought it was the opposite, a, a lower compression ball spinning more. You know, you think it's going to squeeze against the face, stay stuck up against it for longer as the club's working down. But obviously, these things are just not true. Yeah, that kind of has to do with the impact dynamics. And, you know, the, we've <laughs> our colleague, Dr. Eric Hendrickson's done some really interesting modeling of of how the ball interacts with the face and Adam, those tangential forces that get generated actually oscillate during the impact interval. The direction of the tangential force, which causes the spin rate about the the axis of the ball, the timing of that is very sensitive to things like the compression and the material and in that impact intervals is a, that's its own podcast right there probably <laughs> so is this the club kind of deflecting downwards as it hits the ball so the ball creates a, a downward motion on the club head and a harder compression is going to increase that yeah so there's just i guess there's a lot of things going on during that impact interval and so it's not unfortunately it's not as as simple as the ball just grips the club head face and, and leads to spin, there's actually this reversal where it grips, then the friction force changes direction, then it changes direction. And so there's some papers on like a bouncy ball will like oscillate a few times. A golf ball typically will oscillate once where it will change that friction force once during the course of impact. And so that's where we see higher friction leading to lower spin on a driver because then there's more time for there to be a reversal in force and that brings your overall friction force down, brings your overall spin rate down. And so you'll see that if you put impact tape on a driver, you're going to see higher spin indoors. You can feel that glossy coating has, has lower friction, but there's less of a reversal, and it's going to cause more overall friction, more overall spin. It's a pretty complicated topic, and that's... Yeah, my head hurts. It's, yeah, it's, it's also <laughs> why compression is not just the simple like one-to-one correlation with spin rate. I'm looking at a chart here with just dots all over the place because the material matters, the dimples matter. Yeah, the friction between the ball and the face matters, et cetera, et cetera. Here's another rapid fire question at you. You might have touched on this on the softness of the golf ball, but you got a player who has 110 mile per hour driver swing speed versus a player with 90 miles an hour. Does that 
change the type of golf ball that's better suited for them? Will the Pro V1 work for both of them? Like how does swing speed factor into ball decision? We try to do a full sweep of, of speeds when we're doing golf ball testing. And so that's how we will see that certain golf balls go further for a fast club at speed player, but shorter for a slow club at speed player. And that's where you kind of see the inter- intersection of ball speed trade-off, spin rate trade-off. Um, so we're trying to make the, the ball fitting package pretty specialized to the sp- specific golfer that's going through and try to predict performance yeah, relative to someone's speed for the particular so, golf ball. So there is some merit. I know Bridgestone has invested a lot in like their ball fitting database and that's their big marketing thing. They have a lot of different golf balls. Do you see that with like their suite of balls where one might hurt a faster player and one might help the slower player? Because I think that's the hardest thing to understand. It's like, you know, Titleist has a million balls. Bridgestone has a million balls. And you look on the back of the thing and you're like, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) We just had this question because we had a customer come in to the proving grounds to get fit, a husband and a wife. And both of them went through Balnamic. They both got fit. And both of them were recommended the Tour BX as one of their top three balls. And they're like, hey, that doesn't kind of make sense. You know, I heard the RX is for me or whatever, which goes back to the compression thing and kind of bucketing things by swing speed. But if the both golfers kind of had similar preferences and needs of what they needed to marry their club fitting and ball fitting together, and they wanted to both place a premium on driving distance, those absolutely were the right, correct golf balls for both of those archetypes of players. So again, I think it it shows the value of what's unique about Ballnamic is that we aren't necessarily bucketing by swing speed buckets. We're measuring the performance, matching it to what the player needs. So yeah, I, again, would that's probably one of those golf ball things I would try to throw out the window as a consumer. Like, don't worry about compression. Don't worry about how the ball's made or the construction necessarily outside of the Serlin stuff. And then a golf ball can be the best ball for you at a slower swing speed, regardless of some of the kind of marketing buckets and things that are out there. So give yourself permission for that to ap- absolutely be the case. We're out to match the right ball to you as the player. And that's really the, the key to it, to marry it to your needs, your preferences, and your club fitting. I would follow up and say that Bridgestone's got a great selection of golf balls, and they do their, they have their own specific strengths and weaknesses. So that Tour BX is one of the longest balls we've tested on a driver for a fast clubhead speed. And both the Tour BRX which, and the Tour BRXS, which are the lower compression balls, are two of the longest that we've measured on irons. And so they've hit their sweet spot of yep. what they're targeting. And you just got to know what you prefer as a golfer. What type of performance parameters are you concerned with mainly? So obviously things like land angle or stopping power, distance, <laughs> obviously. Do you measure accuracy? Is there a difference between the balls in terms of accuracy, even in terms of maybe quality control? I know that if you hit 100 balls on even a robot, there's some kind of dispersion. Do you see any difference between the balls with that? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else. 
even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, so we definitely have each question in our survey links into what balls getting recommended for you. So when we ask about your driver distance and your driver wind preference and your driver height and iron stopping power, iron workability, flyer prevention, every single one is getting measured and we're going to match you or pick the one that performs the best in that category. Um, the weighting changes a little bit based on what we think is going to suit you the best. So we do think distance is very important, but you can also specify how important a question is to you. So in flyer prevention, we're not asking you, do you want the most spin? Of course, we probably want a ball that's not going to knuckle on you when it's wet out. The question is, how important is it to you that a ball does perform well in the wet? And so you can grade that from not important at all to very important, and we'll bump the algorithm up and down to find a ball that performs well, or maybe doesn't matter how it performs in the wet. The same thing applies to greenside spin. How important is it to you that a ball zips around the green? So each of these questions we're trying to give you a lot of power to tailor the preference tailor the ball recommendation towards your preferences dial up what is important so wind you can say how important is it to you that a ball perform, performs well in the wind what are some of the biggest differences that you would see in each of those categories so say say you take just stopping power what what's some of the bigger differences i know it's hard to define because it depends on club head speed and things like that but yeah, I can I can try to run through them. So driver distance is probably going to be a good 25 to 30-yard difference from min to max. Height could be, let's say, probably 20 feet, plus or minus 10 feet. Wind, that's simulating about a 30-mile-per-hour headwind. So that just kind of 
amplifies your your overall distance. That could be a 30 to 40 yard difference between min and max. Seven iron carries about 10 to 15 yard difference. Workability, we kind of said it's about a 10% curve number. Iron roll, definitely dependent on what your launch conditions are, but that could be a 10 foot and roll out pretty easily. Also depends on how firm the greens are. Flyer prevention, this one's massive. This one, you could get a ball that spins 10,000 in wet to 4,000 or 3,000 in wet. So that's a the 7,000 RPM difference on a, on a wedge shot. Yeah, the flyers is a big deal. And then when we pair that with our club design, and you guys probably heard this concept of hydrophobicity, where it's like we think some balls have a more hydrophobic finish and do different things with the friction. And if you pair that with our wedges or our irons and our groove design, you can absolutely just crush flyers. Like you have massive control over flyers, dewy mornings, even rough flies and things of that nature. That's a really big deal. But again, so to some players, that's not important. They're playing courses and dry conditions and things where that. So Balnamic allows you to get, kind of give you that control to use the user or use the fitter to kind of make those, you know, put the power in your hands on those decisions. What insights do you have into QA testing? Because I know that this has become a big thing the last few years. What I've learned is, you know, a lot of golf balls, you get these direct to consumer brands and they're all being manufactured in Korea. And it's essentially, well, who has access to the best facility? Obviously the, the tailor maids and the best ones are going to get access to them. And then these lower end guys are going to have facilities that aren't checking the balls. I know Titleist has, you know, they're x-raying balls as it comes off the plant. Can you Tell us a little bit about quality assurance. Has it shown up in your testing? Have you looked at that? You know, I know Golf Spy did a ton on this where they were like cutting balls open and they found stuff was off center, which could absolutely affect performance. Yeah, definitely. I think we could touch on it. We're not like hyper focused on it, but I certainly appreciate what the Golf Spy has done for the for the community because I think they've improved. They've forced improvements. Well, I know. From, I know they. From, I know one big guy. I won't. I won't name him. I'm sure a lot of people know they had to change their manufacturing. Yeah, process from the manufacturing. They, but I think that's good, right? That's a positive something for the entire golf community. In our testing, I think again because we're measuring actual performance, right? Yeah. So we're me- we're not measuring inputs. So, yeah, we do measure compression. We're looking at variability of compression and things of that nature. We're doing performance testing as you, the golfer, would go out and do it, right? You don't buy a golf ball to take it home and squish it with a compression thing. That's not important (laughs) to you. You do it to go, like, play your best golf and score low. So all of our testing is viewed from that lens, and that's what we're matching to. So I think that Chris talked about that example of, we test a group of balls and do we get signal from noise within a group of balls, right? So you, the golfer, selecting the right golf ball overall, even if within that selection there is some performance variability, is more important than you being hyper-focused on picking a ball that's tight from ball to ball. Can we assume that most of the major premium golf balls that are in your database at this point, you're not going to get a dud you know, you're not going to be getting these balls that are just total duds. We haven't seen that. Yeah, we're, okay. we're seeing Correct. variability in, in five to ten shots on Pingman. And if a ball was flying 15 yards shorter, we would see it and would show up with shorter distance. And that's that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing pretty consistent distant height, spin. All those launch conditions aren't causing kind of red flags on our end. Yeah, the, the biggest thing that we need to be careful with, our biggest challenge on testing golf balls is no wind. So we're basically trying to test in a dome. And most of the time we test, it's like two, three, four in the morning we start here in Arizona because there's no wind. That might seem funny to people like we're testing balls and we literally can't see them. 
but the radar sees them. And so we get that really good signal from the radar. And that's how we test golf balls. Like we test them in the middle of the night, basically in a dome. And then do we get, do we see differences in those peak height and down range? And we make sure that we're getting signal from noise. And that's a big part of our expertise and how we test actual performance that you, the golfer cares about. But yeah, we don't think that's something that the golfer should be hyper-focused on. We think matching the right overall ball to all parts of your game synergistically should be the focus. The players, yeah, some people play a bunch of different golf balls. Like, so the, uh, the, the smart advice is to find the ball that works for you and just don't switch from it because now you know what to expect. Because I've seen that before where I'll, I think maybe you can make the argument that a, a much better wedge player would notice this, like a pro golfer. They want to know when they hit that spinny pitch shot on a green, how much is it going to take off after that first spin? And if you're playing different balls, they don't grab the same, which you guys have shown. So consistency is, is I'm assuming, very important for, for golf ball performance. Don't don't keep switching balls. Yeah, and I think you highlighted the area you'd see at first. Like you're, you're used to hitting a chip a certain way and you switch balls. There's a massive difference in how that thing's coming off the face in terms of launch and spin. And then your proximity on your chipping is, you know, from a stat standpoint, strokes gain standpoint, like proximity to the hole is enormous. You know, you want to chip that thing in there so it's going to be a tap in. And if it's rolling out 10 extra feet, you're only going to make that putt one out of three times instead of 90% of the time or whatever. From a strokes gain standpoint, that's a really big deal. But we do see merit into switching balls. Maybe if you're traveling or playing different conditions, we think that's pretty smart, actually. So if you're going to play somewhere in higher altitude, higher elevation, you're going on a trip to Bandon, it's going to be windy. Normally where you're from, it's not windy. Then that's another way ball dynamic can be used. I want to keep performance the same in all these areas. But hey, for this one trip, you know, I'm going to higher elevation, different temperature. Those fitting recommendations can be very different for those different conditions. Or you're going somewhere on a trip to Ireland or abandoned, it's going to be windy. You can go in and select a ball that's going to maintain performance in all other areas because you don't want to change that, but it's going to be better in the wind. There's certainly some merit to that. And, and I've certainly used that when I travel around and, and play different conditions. Why would a ball, so for example, like where I live versus where Adam lives, Adam's not playing in wind. I play in 10, 20 miles per hour wind every time I play. What specifically, like the physical properties of the golf ball would cause you to have one ball that's better in my conditions and not as good in Adam's conditions with no wind? Like, what is it about the ball? (laughs) I'm just curious. Yeah, so it, it comes down to the ball flight physics. And so the ball experiences gravity, lift, drag, and the lift and drag is proportional to that spin rate and how fast the ball is flying. And so as we've seen with different golf balls, you will have balls that have more lift or less lift that will closely correlate with how well it performs in the wind. I think the simplest way to think about it is looking at the height. So a ball that flies higher will tend to be more affected by the wind. A ball that flies lower tend to be less affected. Is it the inside of the ball? Is it the combination of, I don't know how differently the inside of a TP5 ball looks from a Pro V1, or is it the dimple design? Is it all of it? What is physically different about how the way these manufacturers produce the ball that could cause that difference in performance? I think the biggest thing is, is the dimple design. It changes the aerodynamics. And so that will then like lead into this effective 400, 800 RPM difference in spin and that spin rate is probably the biggest driver of 
how much a ball will get affected in the wind. Yeah, primarily dimples, and then some percentage of change could be from like the inertial properties, and then differences in in the decay rate of the spin of that particular ball. Because once your ball start, once you hit it, it has a certain amount of spin, it immediately starts losing it, and balls can start losing spin at different decay rates. That's getting really into the weeds, but that's also you know a factor in differences between balls. I was going to ask that about spin decay, so we all we always measure the spin on the initial launch but actually what's more important is what is that spin when it hits the green so you're saying there's there can be significant differences between balls so say you have a ball launching at 10,000 rpms spin or two different balls launching at 10,000 rpms of spin what could be the difference when that ball actually hits the green or is that not the question that should be asked more as it's, fl- as it's <laughs> yeah, flying well, through the yeah, air? The de- <laughs> I think the aerodynamic changes between balls would impact that land angle and the net kind of stopping power more than probably differences in spin decay rate. But those differences could exist and kind of are part of the overall package and the overall picture. But the whole spin decay topic comes up because if – you, if you guys ever hit a drive that starts out and it's drawing and then on the way down, it starts to fade. <laughs> oh, there's all draw fades yes. of the bald balls. Yes. Yeah, yes. you guys have seen that, right? And the re- I was thinking about that a lot. I was like, why does that happen? You know, And the reason why is because the ball takes off with enough spin to kind of maintain stable flight, right? And then once it reaches its peak, both the speed of the ball has you've lost ball speed it starts to slow down and then you've lost spin and then at some point in that flight the flight becomes unstable like a knuckleball right and so you're basically now you got a coin flip you got a 50-50 chance is that ball going to keep drawing and fall down with still draw spin or could it start falling down with like a fade spin or it basically turns into a knuckleball Right. And that's the causal reason because it's lost spin, it's lost ball speed. And all of a sudden you got Tim Wakefield up there halfway through. But that can actually help straighten a ball out (laughs) as well because it's going to it's going to reduce the curve. I think I first noticed that when like the Pro V1 first came out in 2003 or four. It's like, wait a minute, you hit you go out there and you hit the shot. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, it started drawing and then at the end it's fading. But that only happens 50 percent of the time. It's not like that happens 100 percent of the time. You're just flipping a coin out there on which direction it's it, it's going to keep going. The general rule is a ball will lose about 4% of its spin per second. And so that means that a 2,000 RPM drive, when you launch it, could be coming down with 1,500 RPM of spin. And that kind of transitions from borderline stable to knuckleball unstable, which is what Marty was talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Here's another question we got on Twitter that I think is a good one, especially if people are going to use Balnamic and full disclosure, it does cost $39. That's the current cost, right? To do the fitting. Yep. So let's say you get your results. What's enough to make someone change? Like what would be your recommendation to someone saying, oh, is it 10 yards of driver distance or, you know, you're, you're more workable. Is there an amount where you're like, okay, that's obvious. You should change golf balls. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, like with me, like the Snell was kind of close. So I'm like, I like, consistency. So I'm actually not going to change this because it was one yard here, two yards there. Any guidelines there? From what it sounds like, some people might get massive result changes, like 20 yards of distance with driver. I think it's up to the player. I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, like I mean, going in for a driver fit. It's like, okay, is, is, is eight or 10 yards big enough for me? 
I think what you guys need to do, Chris, is get your dad to do some strokes gained stuff in there. We took a little exercise of this. Yeah, Let's so, play this yeah, out. Yeah, the strokes so, gained. Yeah. So one of the questions was like, how much of a difference could a 10 handicap see between maybe a bad golf ball and a good golf ball? Sure. And so the number we've kind of thrown out is 20 yards of driver distance is something you could easily see. And so my dad has done the study of what does 20 yards mean for an 80 golfer? It's 1.3 strokes per round. That's just for driver distance alone. You're yeah. probably losing another 10 yards on all your iron shots. And so I think you could almost double that number and go from 1.3 to 2.5. And then there's all the considerations of stopping power, greenside spin, flyer, wind, yeah. flyer performance, wind. And I think you can pretty easily bump that number up from a 3.0 to a 4.0. I don't think it's crazy to say that a, go- a bad golf ball could cost you four shots around. That's awesome. Strokes gain right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, it makes, uh, I mean, yeah. you're preaching to the choir there. Adam, you have any other questions as I fly through all the, we have so many Twitter questions here. I'm trying to get to all of them. So I use a quad or, you know, lots of people are using launch monitors and inbuilt into those are algorithms. So in terms of distance, it's looking predominantly, I believe, at launch angle, spin rate and ball speed. Yeah. And then it will predict. So if you launched two balls with the same launch, spin, and speed, it's going to produce the same distance. However, you're saying there's a missing element to that. It's you know how what, what's happening during the flight. Yep. So what would be an example of two extremes? If you were to launch the ball at say 150 mile an hour with 2,000 RPMs of spin at say 12 degrees, so a typical driver, what could be the differences in distance there? Mm, yeah yeah so it comes down to the aerodynamic differences we've been talking about and so the range we've seen is basically effective aerodynamic spin rate difference of 800 rpm and so that 2500 could turn to 2100 or to 2900 and for people in terms of total distance that 2100 could go i don't know five ten yards further yeah so it's, it certainly is a big factor. And I think it becomes a bigger factor when you're not well fit or you're struggling to hit a certain spin rate. So if you're a high spin player and you're at 3,500, that 3,900 effective spin is going to go really short and 3,100 is going to be a pretty big gain for you. So that could be a, another kind of 10-yard advantage. When you talk about effective spin, is that the initial spin that comes out or is that are you talking about a spin farther down the flight? It's how you will perceive the flight. So I think Marty had a good example of trying to get fit in for the left dot, which I guess was briefly available. And he was struggling to get a spin from 2,800 down to 2,400. And he took out the left dot, hit it, and the ball flew 10 feet lower. Way lower. Way lower. And his brain said, oh, that's 400 RPM less. I'm going to see 2,400 on the launch monitor. And he looked up at the launch monitor and said 2,800. It hadn't changed. And so that's kind of where the aerodynamic effective was 400 lower, but the actual launch conditions were the same. Yeah. I think what we're hitting on here, Adam and, and John, is one of the most important parts of Volnamic is that, and we actually added in the last year, maybe since you guys have used it, we added about six months ago, a new feature in Volnamic on both driver and irons that calculates what you need from a height standpoint for you. 
So, John, you're very familiar with our optimal launch and spin chart, right, on the driver, which is the way to unlock distance. So you need to know your attack angle on your driver to know your optimal launch conditions. Now, let's say you're getting fit for your driver and you cannot get to those perfect numbers. You can hit the launch window, but you can't hit the spin window. And that's that scenario Chris was just talking about for me. Like I hit my launch window, but my spin was 2800. I need to be at 2400 what do I do? Do I keep tweaking my driver? Do I keep tweaking the shaft? No, everything about that's perfect. What do I do? Now you can put those launch condition numbers right into Volnamic and under height preference, you you hit this calculate button. Well, that's querying our optimal launch and spin chart, our modeling, our aerodynamic modeling, the ball modeling, and it's going to tell you which setting on that scale of one to five from a trajectory standpoint is going to unlock distance for you. And not only do we have that on the driver, now we also have it on the iron because we're. that was one of the big things we learned with Volnamic is people don't know what height they need to put in there, both the fitters and also on the like direct-to-consumer if you're going to do this side. So now we've put in that intelligence of our fitting charts and our landing angle charts and our driver optimization right in there. And that's, I think, the coolest part about Volnamic is weaving the club fit. Like when you get stuck on the club fit, what do you do? You tweak the ball to optimize that. And you can do it across the entire spectrum of performance, not just, you know, myopically looking at driver distance or myopically looking at, at wedge spin or short game performance. Here's a question we got that I've heard before is you hear a golfer, you know, you got a 20 handicap playing a pro V1 and someone's like, you're not good enough to play that ball. Why are you playing that <laughs> ball? Any truth to that? Like, is there a correlation between handicap level and the kinds of balls it spits out at you? Or is, or is the Pro V1 could be better? Because let's face it, like Titleist has, you know, done what they've done for decades now and their marketing and they're, they're, the balls are awesome. Like everything is pushing you towards the yeah. Pro V1 and the Pro V1X. And a lot of players just do it by default. Any correlation there between like handicap level and the golf ball? Or is that just total nuance? I will say what the Pro V1 and the Pro V1X have done really well in the last generation or two, decade or two, is that they've been high ball speed, they go far off the driver, and then they're also high spin around the green. So they're low spin on the driver in general, right? You know, low spin on the driver and high spin around the greens. And that has been the kind of fundamentals which has allowed that ball to perform really good for such a long period of time. So again, as the high handicap golfer, how much value do they find in that high spin around the greens? And what we found, I mean, if we put our club design hats on right now, we, we just launched this this club called the Chipper. I, yeah, I saw that. It's, uh, you're finally entering the game. The info, abs- You should do an infomercial on I that. I tell you what, fun. I know. It's pretty <laughs> incredible. But it has done so good and people are – I like the square strike. I bought it and tried it for like – I did a little expose Amazing. a few years ago on infomercial products. I'm like – Honestly, if I had the yips, I would tell someone to use this thing. The chipper is absolutely amazing, yeah. right? But it does it's built to not spin around exactly. the green. Exactly. It's got right? to roll so out. How does that relate to Balnamic? Well, maybe spin around the greens is not a variable you as the high handicap golfer want to play with, right? That's again where there's that matching that comes in. And that's where those balls being high spin around the greens, they might be over service or not the right match for you know, a less skilled golfer that's not going to use spin around the greens. And sure enough, that's that's a question right there in Balnamic. But Chris might have some, have some things to add. Yeah, I think Marty hit on a lot of good stuff. It comes down to preferences. If high spin around the green isn't important, there are a lot of really good balls available for you. And I think it also goes down to 
the relationship between swing speed and distance. And so the high compression is really important for distance when you're swinging it really fast. But low compression can go pretty far with low spin for a slow swinging golfer. And so if you're hitting a lot of, I don't know, 150-yard fairwoods down the fairway, it might take every par four as a three-shot hole, a low compression ball may go the furthest for you. And that would be a pretty good option for your game. And it's also a cheaper option. And so there'd be a pretty good reason to go with it. Here's another question that just popped into my head. I'm thinking of like range balls. I've noticed like some range balls, which are usually like two piece, not very good. They tend to launch higher for wedges. I've noticed Mm. they kind of slide up on the face. Is that something you've noticed in your testing will launch? I know we talked a lot about spin, initial launch conditions. Does that change from ball to ball much? Yeah, there's a really clean relationship between launch and spin. So high launch correlates with low spin and low launch correlates with high spin on wedges wedges and and on irons. And so one of the questions that came in on Twitter was how much true changes there between launch conditions is it between two degrees of launch angle or 10 degrees of launch angle. And I pulled down our our seven iron data, our, our wedge data actually would be a bigger difference, but seven iron said there was a, let's say three degree difference in launch angle, which doesn't sound like a ton, but the spin rate difference is about 3000. And so wow. that means you, you can go from a seven iron that's launching at 15 and 7,000 and that could go to 18 and 4,000. Yeah. And that's a totally different ball flight. Yeah, yeah. One's going to hit and stop on the green. And the other one's going to knuckle and fly forever and roll out an extra 20 feet. The other perspective to look at that is if you have a three-degree change in launch angle, how much would you have to change the loft on your irons to do that? And that'd be like five degrees. So four and a half, five degrees. So that's another way to look at it. It's another way to think about how important it is to fit club and ball together. Here's another one that popped up since I mentioned range balls. I did an article on my site about this years ago, and it was still very popular. Do you have any data or testing on range balls? Because I'm thinking to the golfer who think of the balls at the local driving range. Yeah, You know, we know that range balls are not manufactured the same way as a pro V1. They're worn down. So you're going to the range hitting balls to the 150 yard with your seven iron. And that might not be the actual distance that your premium golf calls going to fly on the course, the height, the trajectory, the curvature, Any knowledge you can pass to our listeners on range balls? I would say it's a a privilege to be able to hit premium balls at our ping range. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) That would be happy. Have you gone to the dirt track down the road in like Tempe, Arizona? (laughs) The ball, unfortunately, is knuckleballing on you. There are scuff marks. It is flying in all sorts of different directions. And I have been in ranges where I'm like, I'm not getting any useful ball flight data here, unfortunately. Yeah. So. There's a range of range balls, but... Even in my home course, John, I've thought about bringing a little net that I hit into, bringing a nice launch monitor, like a Mevo Plus or something. Oh, this is such an engineer Hitting my right own here. premium balls <laughs> yeah. right into a net right in front yeah. of me on it, so I can hit <laughs> off grass, you know? But range balls are tough. There's not a great solution to them other than try to get creative. It is tough because of all those factors and performance. And they vary a lot from range ball to range ball. So that's the other thing that makes it tough. Well, which particular, you know, ball do you have at your particular course? But when we used to have our in-flight fitting software, we we did more testing on range balls because at the time we were we were providing fitting recommendations. We even had a 
transformation you can make from a floater ball on the one of those ranges in Florida. You hit the balls that go into the floater or Cayman Islands ball to a premium ball. But we haven't been doing as much testing on range balls lately. I've got a question for you guys. What trajectory would be better into the wind? I know there are a few variables that you'd be tweaking here, but mm. I casually mentioned the other day because this was mentioned to me when I was studying materials design in university. This was like 20 years ago before we had all your your great information. And the lecturer said that actually a, a higher launching ball, if it had low enough spin, is going to cut through the wind better than a lower launching ball with higher spin. So obviously there'll be a kind of crossover there, but what would be better into the wind in your experience? Yeah, this is this is a really good question. I think maybe the best way to get a full answer is to go to our library section on Balnamic, and we have an article on wind, and it shows if you go through a range of 8-degree launch to 17-degree launch and 1,500 spin to 3,500 spin, it will show you how much a 20-yard hurting wind will change your carry distance. And so one example is high launch, low spin, 17 and 1500 versus low launch and high spin, eight degrees and 3,500. They both get hurt 35 yards by a 20 mile per hour wind, which may not be what you'd expect. They're both both getting equally hurt. That ball flight on the, on the low launch, high spin will actually be lower. So you can't just look at your height to see how much a ball will get affected by the wind. But also overall, that 17 launch of 1500 spin has a baseline carry that's much further. And so it'll still go a lot further into the wind than that that low spin high, sorry, low launch high spin shot. But it's a good question because I thought about this for myself. I played in a few, like Kiowa, I played in the PGA Championship at Kiowa. And I was thinking about, and we consulted our tour department on this before the Open Championship. The conditions didn't lead to this, but the concept of if you were playing a Lynx course straight out and straight back, it would probably be worthwhile playing a downwind driver and then an into the wind driver, right? And your downwind driver is going to fly straighter. The optimal launch conditions are grossly different than into the wind. And so you could play a longer length driver, more focused on distance, more focused on like way higher spin and a little bit higher launch for downwind, and then play an into the wind driver that is closer to your like everyday gamer that might be just a little lower launch and a little bit lower spin. But we think there's a scenario for that to play a downwind driver and an into wind driver, especially on a particular golf course. Now that's at the upper echelon, but it, uh, of uh, having that equipment and gear and everything at your fingertips. But from a tour player standpoint, if you know the golf course, you know the weather, you know the wind, that would be a pretty, a pretty smart move that you might see one of our tour players do at a certain course. So in terms of strokes gained, it'd be worth pulling out a, a club you don't use out of the bag and adding an extra driver, you're saying? Be very easy to figure that out, right? Be very easy. Hey, take out my forearm for the day or whatever because the wind's be- – <laughs> you know, when I played Kiowa in round two of that uh, PGA Championship in 2012, it, the wind was blowing 35, 40 miles an hour. I mean, I could have taken out whatever. If I had two drivers, one that went like super long downwind and, and one that's super uh, different launch conditions into the wind, it would, it would be a no-brainer to figure out what club to take out of the bag, yeah. Will you see, do tour players switch balls depending on venues or is that uncommon for them? You know, when they're playing that WGC event in Mexico is a really big deal. But what's interesting about the tour schedule is all their events are basically at sea level and they're almost all in the same temperature range. So the tour players don't 
travel around a lot when you look at the geography that they're playing. Like there's just their schedule is like almost all at sea level and between like 70 to 100 degrees, right? It's kind of abnormal for them to go play a different like elevation or or grossly different temperature condition. The big time we've seen balls get considered at events is the few alternate shot events that occur. And so, oh yeah, because then you're. I remember that that story with Phil and Tiger, and I think they chose Tiger's ball. That was a long time ago, but yeah, sure. we have, we have a more contemporary example. Yeah, so the the Presidents Cup. I guess I can. My dad was consulting for the international team, and he. I know he to know, told me that when I met him in person. I'm like, do you really want to tell people that, Mark? Yeah. He, <laughs> he's, 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 now he's you're outing him on on this podcast. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a traitor, and now everyone knows, but. <laughs> they were interested in pairing up players that played similar golf balls so they didn't have oh. to make that adjustment process. And I even have have the experience playing alternate shot with one of our engineers who's a very low spin player, very good, better golfer than me. And he plays a high spin ball. I'm a worse golfer, very high spin golfer, and I play a very low spin ball. And he said, I can't play your ball. If you give me your <laughs> low spin ball, it's not going to go anywhere. And I was like, well, I'm not very good. I'll play your high spin ball and I'll, I'll, I'll take the sacrifice. <laughs> But it matters, <laughs> especially at a higher level for international. Also, Solheim Cup, we had the same thing where we had one of our staffers playing with Lexi Thompson, who is a Bridgestone player, and wanted to know what the performance differences would be. So it really matters in those alternate shot fun events. So what Chris is saying is that we may have provided some information that may have so made its way yeah. to his dad that may have helped give the international team a chance. Yeah, <laughs> didn't, didn't do enough. Unfortunately, I, I don't even know if I can say that. <laughs> it's in their best interest to say that. <laughs> Slaughtering. Here's another random, I'm just thinking of any golf ball question I can think of. You know, those guys who, you see those stories, those scuba divers who collect balls and make hundreds of thousands of dollars getting waterlogged balls from TPC Sawgrass and wherever. Should people buy a golf ball that's been rescued from a water hazard? Is there a material decline in the performance? Do you know the answer to that? I don't know the answer. I think Tyler said that you probably should not play a ball that's been waterlogged, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. Well, there's a huge secondary market, you know, online for all these re- refurbished golf balls. And we're, a lot of them are probably being taken from water hazards. We're going to need to test that again. Next time we're on the pod, we'll have an answer to that one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We haven't done that, but that's an interesting test in terms of the decay that would occur. But yeah, I don't think we have I don't think we know the answer to that one. I would be nervous about doing it. If I see you two guys retiring early, I know you've had a nice little big paycheck yeah. from Titleist to keep some some research hidden. I would be wary of doing that if I were a consumer, like buying a ball that's been rescued. I'd be I'd be very worried wary of doing that. Okay. I'm looking through Twitter. I, I think I'm shocked. I think we actually got to most of the questions and we've done it in just over an hour, which is impressive for this podcast. Usually it takes seven hours. Anything else off the top of your head, Adam, while I'm searching through Twitter here? Yeah, I got, got a couple. How balanced are golf balls these days? You know, if it's say, I suppose that's very important in putting. Yeah, if you if you had to roll a bunch of golf balls and mm. angle them differently, how, how much dispersion are you seeing in the outcome? Because I know it's big for Bryson to float his golf balls in salt water to make sure they're really balanced. How much of a difference does that make these days? Yeah, it's another good question, Adam. I, I know certainly if the center of gravity moves around, that would be a very big deal in both putting and also like how it would fly down range, right? Absolutely. But yeah, again, we we haven't dove very deep into that topic because we've seen that tolerances have, have become very tight in that regard. 
it would be very similar to, I always liken it to shafts. 10, 20 years ago, finding the spine on your shaft and installing it in a certain way was way more important because there was more variability. I think in today's age of manufacturing, both through manufacturers, some of the other stuff that's been exposed and centeredness of manufacturing, because the tolerances are tighter, we've seen it become less and less of a big deal to actually have to measure and do and be concerned about that, which we think is a positive something for the entire community. Good. So Bryson's wasting his time then. You're <laughs> <laughs> trying to find every edge. Go for it, uh, you know, at, the, at his level, you know. So different turf conditions at impact, so the actual fairway that you're hitting off. You know, I notice that if I'm in a fairway bunker, for example, the ball will launch lower, or at least anecdotally it's seeming, but it's probably because I'm hitting all the lips. <laughs> I'm cursing the, the ground condition. But in a fairway bunker, the ball seems to launch lower and then spin higher. Is there truth to that? So is there a difference between hitting off, say, a hard, rock-hard Australian Lynx versus like a plush Parkland fairway in terms of the launch conditions? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think it comes down to the timing, the gear effect and how the gear effect is working and the timing of whatever soil conditions or turf, sand, soil conditions and how much that there, there's going to be a reaction force pushing the club back upwards, right? So it'd be like hitting off a lie board or a cart path versus uh, soft, powdery sand. And if the club's going to going to come into your scenario, you notice like launching low with high spin, that iron shot coming in, hitting the ball you get this downward force from the ball's going to launch up. You get an opposite reaction force that's going to push the club down. And since that sand is soft, you're not going to get any upward force from the sand pushing the club back up. And so you're going to get more tangential force on the ball that's going to cause it to spin more, right? More of the forces that are transferred between the club and the face are going to go into the backspin and less into the launch because you're not going to get that reaction force of the turf pushing up if that makes sense. So there is a lot to it. There's a lot to that reaction force. And that's why divots are are made, right? The ball, you take a practice swing, same exact swing. There's no divot. You hit the ball, ball goes up, reaction force on the club, big reaction force on the club that pushes that club down into the ground, down into the turf. So yeah, there's multiple factors there. There's that reaction force, there's the gearing, there's the friction between the ball and the face. And then in certain lies, you're going to pick up a lot of moisture and water that the club's going to pick up before the ball even interacts with the face. And we see that on our phantom camera, 20,000 frames a second video. You think you have a nice, dry, perfect lie. You're actually squeezing water droplets out of the blades of grass before the ball and the club face interact. And that can affect your friction and can affect the launch conditions. And that's going to depend on the surface finish, the grooves, the ball kind of flyer reduction properties. So all those things kind of play into it, Adam, and can have an impact on your initial launch conditions. And yeah, does that kind of answer your question? Anything else you're curious about? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, so that's probably one of the reasons why better players prefer thinner sold clubs as well is because they're probably getting more consistent interaction with the turf with that. 
you know, when you're using a chunkier sole, it's going to be maybe not more consistent, but well, I suppose if you you could do this test where you hit an inch behind it each time and <laughs> the, the thinner sole is probably going to react differently, right, to the thicker sole, you're going to get more bounce up, different launches and spins perhaps. Yeah, this is somewhat related, but we, we did a test out of a bunker and we asked people to grade their strike at whether it was thin, good or fat. And I think the interesting finding was that fat shots out of the bunker led to higher spin. Generally, you'd see a lot of turf and water if you chunk a shot out of the fairway or the rough, and that's going to lower your spin. But the interaction between sand and ball and club is actually pretty high friction. So we saw some low ball speed, but high spin shots, which was pretty interesting. Yeah, some people have like you hit a chip shot, you get sand on the ball. If you leave that sand on the or sand on the face, if you leave that on the face, you'll get mega high spin and really low ball speed. It's just this. That's what Gary didn't Gary Player always say that he never cleaned his face when he went out of the bunker if he didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it is going to lead to maybe more variability because you know you could really rip it or maybe mildly rip it. So I'd I'd be cautious with that. Approach. Yeah, I mean I, I don't know what Gary did with that, but I'm assuming it was pretty good because his skill was so damn high. He exactly. Could make that adjustment, knowing the spin, the ball is going to spin more. But that is the causal. Factor. I still think about that when I'm on the course for some reason. When I see sand on my club, I'm like, oh, if I leave mm. it on. There, Should I leave it more. or not? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, it's not often we we bring people on the show. You know, we get a lot of people wanting to come on the show to promote their products. And and full disclosure, we asked Marty and Chris to come on because I appreciate. You know, the Ballnamic site has a lot of great free information on there. A lot of it's from that initial discussion we had of wind altitude. I included a lot of that in my book because it was so helpful. Thank you guys for sharing the info. If people want to learn more, where can they go? We've been talking about it all, all episode, but give a nice give a nice plug for the site that you that you guys have worked hard on. Yeah, definitely pretty easy to find ballfitting.com and go on there. It's built to uh, go through whether you have launch conditions or not. So you don't need to know your ball speed launch and spin. Another cool way to use it is you can go on, answer the questions, do the whole survey, then go get on a launch monitor. You know, at your local course, go into a store, find a fitter, whatever you need to do. Get your driver and or seven iron launch conditions. That will allow you to be the most precise on your fitting and go through and get a ball recommendation. There's also really fun articles on there in the library section. That's some fun stuff, a little deeper, deeper content on what we talked about today. If any of that was interesting to anybody. So ballfinning.com, Ballnamics, the product. And we also have a Twitter account. So you can certainly follow that. We try to post some fun, interesting content there on all these fun topics and on how how ball flight and aerodynamics matter to the player. What's your Twitter handle? At ball fitting. At ball fitting. Yeah, at ball fitting. fitting. And just a closing thought for me, similar to, you know, we have Woody Lashin from Pete's Golf come on the show quite often to talk about the nuances of club fitting. And I think you know, the takeaway from those episodes is like, it is worth it to get fit for your clubs because you could be leaving performance on the table. And no one really ever talks about golf balls because this type of analysis was not available. I think people were just guessing. So I think one of the more interesting points you brought up, Marty, was that it can be, you know, if you're getting like two out of three things right in terms of launch conditions and you can't get the third one, the golf ball might be that the missing part of the puzzle. It is 39 bucks to get the fitting. It's a little bit of investment. It's a cost of most dozen balls at this point, or not even, because golf balls have gotten really expensive. 
I think it's a good idea for golfers who want to squeeze out some more performance and just make sure that the golf ball that they've maybe purchased based on marketing. Let's face it. I think a lot of people purchase golf balls based on on marketing claims. This is a way to optimize your performance and make sure you are playing the right ball for what I believe is a nominal cost. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you guys having us on, being able to talk about it. And again, just break through the confusion of balls. Uh, They change year over year. You know, I think that'd be a good best, like a small investment into your golfer's game is like once a year when we, whenever we launch new balls, if you sign up through there, we'll let you know when we have new balls in the database. Once a year, go through it at the beginning of the season. It'd be a fun, useful way to marry club and ball fitting together. Or when you go through a new club fitting is to make sure you're marrying that up if things have changed in your in your launch conditions. Cool. Well, we're definitely going to have you guys back on. Uh, Ping has a ton more research that's super interesting and helpful to golfers. Adam, where can everyone find you? If you guys go to adamyounggolf.com, I've got loads of blogs, free articles, free video, I think, on there. And then obviously I've got my online products as well that can help you improve accuracy and strike. And John, where can people find you? You can check out my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, available on Amazon. And there is a whole chapter with some of your your data on there, guys, where I specifically call you out by name. So you're, you're living in the book forever. So thanks for all your help. It's been great. And thank you to everyone who supports the show. We'll see you next week with a new episode. Give us your feedback and see you soon.